It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrator and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him, because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. I want you to picture me about Let's put a, a solid 120 pounds lighter. Little Eric, sick at home. The price is right has just ended. Because, you know, you're sick at home. You're laying on the couch like, I don't feel good, Mom. And I'm laying there, and I turn it to PBS because the magic man himself, Bob Ross, the Michigander from Ypsilanti. Who here watched Bob Ross? A few of us? Yeah, so good. I love Bob Ross. He would paint these ama amazing naturescapes. And I think one of the reasons, you know, this pops to mind in this teaching is because we've seen such cool art through this series. And we've had artists from the drawings and the paintings and the carvings. It just, it's awesome and it's inspiring. For someone like me who looks like they paint with their elbows, it's amazing to look at this and be like, wow, you can actually do that. Because they're like, draw a face. And I'm like, oh, and it's an X. I'm just not good at art. I wish I was. And I really love it because when I was young, especially on those sick days, you know, it's like you kind of map out your day till I Dream a Genie came on because I'm that old. <laughs> um, all right, stop. I got to stay. I got to pay attention here. Um, but I would watch Bob Ross, and I loved him because, you know, he, had, he would come on screen, and he would come on in his kind of tight pants. Bob was a tight jean wearer, and he would come on, and he had his awesome hair, and he'd be like, good, good morning. We're, we're here to paint today. We're going to paint this beautiful nature and mountains, you know, mountainscape, and, and I'm just, I'm really glad you're here. And I, I brought Squirrely Girl with me, and you're like, oh, my gosh. That's a real squirrel. And he had a squirrel that he saved from some sort of natural injury in nature. And he trained it to sit like a parrot while he painted. And the squirrel's just like, I used to live in happy trees like that, Bob. And it was just an amazing thing. And she would sit up there, and he had his easel, and he had his paints out. And he'd be like, I've got my canvas stretched in the regular covering of titanium white. And uh, below on the screen, I'm going to go ahead and show you the things you need to know before you start. And what you need to know is these colors. And he would walk you through the colors you need. And they would show up on the bottom of the screen. And it would be like phthalo blue, yellow ochre, burnt sienna, 
Isn't that great? I love these colors. My favorite blue, Prussian blue, right? It was these great colors, Van Dyke brown for the brown dirt dikes the Dutch people built, I'm assuming. Um, but like he would put these up here and you would know if I want to emulate what you're about to do, Bob, I would need these colors. So you get them on your little palette. Over the uh, shutdown, we actually got canvases and we did some family paintings. Uh, it was super fun. And I'd be like, stop! I got to figure out how to paint that happy tree. And I worked so hard. And at the end of it, like, we all kind of, like, showed each other our pictures. Like, yeah, yeah. And I turned mine around. People are like, oh, oh, my word. What would you do to that canvas? I'm like, I'm colorblind and dyslexic. I'm like, but here's the happy tree. And it's like, ah, ah, like, cut me down. Use me for firewood. It was awful. But I had so much fun because I love Bob Ross. We would watch him on the screen. And I'd be like, pause it. You know, we got to figure out how to do this. I loved how he would walk you through it. But he walked us, walked us through it by saying, here's things you need to know before you start. Today, we will talk about courageous obedience. I believe Scripture calls us and challenges us into creation. Courageous obedience. I'm going to say creative obedience. That's how I do it. I'm like, I'm going to be creative, not courageous, but courageous obedience. And it calls us up out of the ruts of religion and into living faith. And when we look at this, we'll understand more and more why God values us exercising the muscle in our life of courageous obedience. I want to give you a heads up about, well, there's some things I want you to know before we start. First thing is this. Courageous obedience is a value within the Foundry Church. We have a series of values. Um, we have seriously fun, upside down, inside out leadership, the table, transformation, create, oh, creative, courageous obedience. That is going to happen so many times today, and by the end, I'll be like that little tree in my painting. I'll just make, make it end. But um, courageous obedience, we have these, and here's why courageous obedience is a value here. Because we believe that God calls people of faith historically through Scripture, historically through the church age of the last 2,000 years to the present day to do things that are courageously obedient that maybe make no sense in the world's eyes. And we believe at the foundry, and we have lived into this many times, where we are courageously obedient to what God says, not what we feel, not what we think, but we're being obedient to him. It seems good to God, the Holy Spirit, and to us, and we courageously obey, which means there are times we take risks without guaranteed outcomes, which means at times what we do in the world's eyes looks like failure. But if it's courageously obedient, then we know this, that we have been obedient and even failure in the world's eyes can be success in God's if we were courageously obedient as he called us to be. So things to know before you start living bravely in courageous obedience. We are going to look at some lessons, four lessons that we can know and take with us before we start living in courageous obedience. It's important to do this before we start living, like you get your colors out before you start painting. Have these things in your mind, and we will learn these lessons today from the life of the prophet Daniel. Daniel. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So Daniel was one of the top three leaders in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. It's gone from Babylonia, now it's a Medo-Persian empire. 
the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to give him, set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in conduct of his government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. I think that's an interesting pairing there. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. I'm going to go back to this. Daniel had lived in Babylon for a really long time. And what distinguished him? They knew that he was faithful to the law of his God. So we can see this scripture in front of us and go, okay, what, what lesson does this scripture teach us? Lesson number one. Thing number one that you need to know, we need to know, is this. Sometimes God's formula for success causes envy. Sometimes God's formula for success causes those around us to be envious. And that is a dangerous thing. But here's the thing. Daniel's integrity and trustworthy nature that he was neither corrupt nor negligent. How many of us, literally, if you could show me a politician in America who is neither corrupt nor negligent, I would vote for them. Because I'd be like, oh my goodness, what a wonderful description of his character. He wasn't corrupt, he couldn't be bribed, he couldn't be pushed around. Remember last week when he said to the king, keep your gifts, I don't want all you're going to give me. I'll just tell you the truth, he was neither corrupt, couldn't be bought, and he wasn't negligent. He wasn't lazy in the affairs he dealt with according to the state. So when we look at this, we realize that he was, in verse 4, neither corrupt nor negligent. He was a good man with great character. Daniel, by living in obedience to God, caring about what mattered to God, had made, well, he had made a ton of good results for the kingdom and a byproduct was there were other leaders who were envious of his place. He was, he had such high values on what God had called him to do and to be. He was first and foremost supposed to be faithful to God. So he would do that. And here's what we know. King Darius valued Daniel above anyone else. Think of this. King Darius. So it starts with Nebuchadnezzar when Daniel's just a young man, 13, 14, 15 years old. Then we find there's King Belshazzar. We're on to King Darius in the Medo-Persian Empire who values him on a high level because caring about God mattered in Daniel's life, and it bore fruit in the leadership roles that he had. He was promoted and he was valued, and it caused those around him to be envious. They hated that Daniel outshined them, and they looked for ways to get him in trouble. They were going to rat him out however they could, but they couldn't find anything, being that he was neither corrupt nor negligent, so they got frustrated. Daniel didn't rub his success in their faces. He wasn't like, hey, check out how average you are compared to me, right? He wasn't like, you know, holding up a handful of Super Bowl rings like, oh, I'm the goat, you know? He wasn't doing that stuff. He was serving faithfully without corruption or neglect to his duties, and he was being a man of integrity in a world that had very little of it. 
one of the things about Daniel that I love and respect the most is Daniel didn't change who he was based on where he was. He was in Babylon, but not of Babylon. But um, around the Babylonians, he was still just Daniel. And he didn't, um, he didn't adjust how he did things. He stayed in his own practice. He didn't reduce his behaviors to the level of their mediocrity. He didn't see his ways as being something like, oh, it's no big deal. I'll just slack, you know, over here with whoever it is. I was going to say Matt, but I didn't want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> but he didn't, um, and, and Matt's super not mediocre. I was just giving him a hard time. I love Matt. Um, but uh, he didn't uh, stoop to their level or accept their mediocrity as his standard. He lived in integrity. And one warning, when people are envious of you, it makes you feel defensive. When, when you have people who are envious, and this does happen no matter your position in life, people will look at you and want what you have and feel angry or envious of you. It makes you defensive. You start looking back at them, fault-finding in them, and you become as unhealthy as they are. Be careful. Hear this warning. Be careful when someone is envious and you get defensive not to engage in the same practices because it takes your eyes off God and gets them on them. You start worrying more about pleasing people instead of God. And one warning is for us, that's an easy way to respond. But Daniel didn't respond that way. He kept his eyes on God. Don't take your eyes off of God. He is your source, as he proved even in Daniel's life. He was his source. So Daniel never broke gaze from him. So lesson number one that we can take, sometimes God's formula for success can cause envy. Daniel chapter 6, verses 6 through 12 says this. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered. In accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, so if the, the law of the Medes and Persians is if the king puts his signet to it, not even the king can change the law, right? It can't be repealed. So King Darius, deeply moved by their devotion, not seeing the undercurrent of their effort, put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned of the decree, and how it had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem, so they faced towards the west. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about this royal decree. Oh man, people like this. This is what they do. You can almost see him slinking in, just all, hey, king, you know, just drippy and weird. Okay, do not, did not, you publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into a lion's den. It's a rhetorical question. You know, when you get home and the garbage isn't taken out, didn't I tell you to take the garbage out? You're not asking for clarity. You're using it as a way to remind them they're reminding the king. And here's lesson 
number two that we can take away from this. The next thing you'll need for the journey of um, creative, (laughs) courageous obedience is this. Private obedience can cause public outrage. Private obedience can cause public outrage. And this is hard because not only will you face envy, if you choose to be courageously obedient, you will face envy and you will face hate. They will hate you. Jesus talked about this. Jesus said, you know, the world has hated me. And they will hate you. He said that to his disciples. So we know this is true. The enemy, and I want to be very clear here, the enemy, Satan, the devil, hates obedience to God. He hates it. He will conspire others against you because Satan hates God. He hates Jesus. And there's a spiritual reality that we as the church need to be aware of, that in every situation, obedience to God is detestable to Satan. He hates it with everything in him. He is going to do everything we can to get us to disobey, to sin against God in our disobedience. He hates obedience. And Daniel knew the ruling. He knew the ruling that had come out, but he wasn't going to abandon his God. He remained faithful. I love Daniel's response. There's a lot of ways you can look at this, but I just love the purity of his response. When Daniel heard that the decree had been published, he went home, opened the windows towards Jerusalem, knelt down, and prayed. He didn't post anything on, you know, the Babylonian Facebook He didn't put anything out. What? How dare you? This is my right. I'm number three in charge here. How's this happening? No. He just went home quietly to his house. He knelt down and prayed. You know, why floats him and jets him. That's who I call the the satraps. I I like that. You remember them from Little Mermaid, the Ursula's little eels? Um, Boy, they're slinking outside there. Is Daniel praying? Oh, king, live forever, and off they go, right? They're going to tell on him. They're going to get him in trouble. But Daniel's doing this privately. He's praying privately. And what happens in this is we need to understand private obedience can cause public outrage. He was praying in his room. He wasn't hurting anyone. But they were determined to destroy him. His private obedience created public outrage and uproar. And so it will be for us as the church, even when we privately obey God, there will be a public response and a storm to weather. Don't get rattled by the noise. Don't get rattled by the noise of public outrage. Listen for God. Trust that he knows not only his plans for you, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? He knows those. We know that. Hold on to that. But also, have another confidence. God knows their plans too. God knows. And he's like, oh, it's such a bad plan. But he knows them. So trust in God and don't get rattled by the noise of public outrage. Daniel chapter 6, verse 13 to 18. The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who's one of your exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or the decree you put in writing. Oh, Thorman Lion's dead. I mean, you can just feel him. They're so happy. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed, and he was determined to rescue 
Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. How much do you love that? How much did Daniel mean in the life of King Darius that he did everything he could to break the laws of the Medes and Persians so that he could save someone who he so respected and trusted? He knew his character. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Like, I love his character. He's known for this. They don't even worry that he doesn't worship the gods of the Medes and Persians. He's like, may the God whom you serve rescue you. They know who Daniel's loyal to. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace. He spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. The third thing we can walk away from with this is often courageous obedience. You want this for the journey, my friends. Hold tight to this. Often courageous obedience looks like failure to the rest of the world. It looks like failure to the rest of the world. Daniel's faithfulness, his courageous obedience got him arrested. His obedience got him in trouble publicly, physically. The boss who liked him so much, the king, couldn't even save him. He worked hard to save him and couldn't. Daniel was not just demoted. He wasn't fired. He wasn't put on leave, unpaid leave. Daniel was put in a den full of hungry lions. He was put in a place to be eaten. If anyone had been watching what was going on and looked at Daniel as a map to success and a great life, they would have seen by now that he had become the ultimate picture of failure. No one wanted to be inside on the other side of the stone where the lion's den was, where Daniel was alone with the lions. They probably shuddered to think of what was happening to him at that very moment. The other kings and nobles were probably like, yes, you know they're eating him, and they're super happy about it. He looked like a failure. He probably looked so narrow-minded because he was so faithful to God. And as God, according to what they saw, had let him down, they're celebrating, eating, drinking, and having fun. And Daniel looks so small-minded and dead for a pointless cause. They thought he was praying to something that wasn't even there. It looked like a failure in the world's eyes. And I want to tell you something. Like one of the things that, um, you know, I always, I have, a, I, I think I have Sunday school glasses on um, on the Daniel and Lion's Den story, you know, like the lion's just looking at him, like just a little bit larger, normal cats. When we were in Africa last summer, we did a thing called the Lion Walk. Now, in zoos, we have safety. At the Lion Walk, there, there wasn't so much that. It was, there's fear and then there's what I felt. They, you know, like those crisscross chain link fences? There was that. But there was no trench. You could reach your, you know, your hand through and like scratch the lion's back. And they're huge, like 400 pounders. They're gigantic cats. They're massive. And the, and the, the guy running the lion walk was walking us through. And when they feed them, this is what they do. I could not believe it. They said, yes, we cut a donkey in half and throw one half in this bin. And they, I was like, 
first you cut a donkey in half and just throw it to him, and that's what they eat for a couple of days. It was nuts. It was crazy. And so we're there, and we're looking, and he said, with Ethan, Ethan was the smallest. He said, the lionesses will look at you, and they'll want you because you're the smallest. That's what they go for. And Ethan was like, and, and then he turns out he wasn't joking because we get to the cages, to the pens, and we're looking, we're like, this is awesome. And there was a big, I mean, she's a big girl. She was just sitting there, and she's just kind of, she's laying, she had one little paw kind of crumpled up, and she's like this. And she was looking at all of us, you know, just thoroughly bored. And then she saw Ethan, and her head went like this, and I was like, oh. And then her paw came out, and then she rocked back on her hunches, and I was like, you're going to try to eat him. Chain link fence with a little thing on the top. And the lion could just be like, yeah, no. And I was just like, oh. And so we kind of move Ethan off to the side. Even he felt it, you know, because I think afterwards he's like, that lion wanted me and not in a good way. <laughs> like He was awesome about it. But she was looking at him, and when we moved him off, she did that. And I was like, oh. And she kind of came at the fence, and afterwards, both Erica and I said, like, I accepted death. I was going to get between that cat and my son, but I was like, that cat is going to eat good. That cat, it's going to hurt, and I'm going to feel what claws are like and, like, teeth. And they had such big teeth. I was like, oh, when you think of what lions really are and going into a lion enclosure unprotected, that's where Daniel went. It's not a kindergarten view. It's not something that was like, oh, man, that was kind of cool. He spent a night with the lions. No. He was there to be eaten. It was terrifying. It would have been painful and frightening. Imagine how it looked. Imagine how it looked in all their eyes. It looked like failure to the world. Daniel prayed to his God and now he would be eaten. Darius couldn't eat. He, the king, he couldn't eat or be entertained. He couldn't even sleep. He just wandered around his palace waiting for daybreak, waiting for something to happen. You know Daniel's enemies are throwing the party of parties this night because they think they got him. But I want you to remember with me, nothing surprises God. God's never like, oh, I did not see that coming. That doesn't happen. If he called you, he will provide for you. And even if he provides in a way that um, your life doesn't continue, he still provides. In Christ, he has provided eternal life for us. So we can look and say, if God called you, he will provide. He will provide and he will do all things to glorify his name in and through the life you live. If he called you, he will provide and he's never surprised by your situation. Let's read the rest of the story. Daniel chapter 6, 18 to 23. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called out, to Daniel in an anguished voice, okay? So think of a heartbroken person, right? He, he calls out, but listen to what he calls him. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? That is a fantastic, if you could back that up for me, Kyle, real quick. Um, that is a fantastic way to be, like, I'd be like, have you been eaten? I wouldn't call him by his name. I'd be like, you know, you wouldn't know what to call him. You'd you'd be like, are you alive? But listen to the way he calls him. It's beautiful. Daniel, 
servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lion? And Daniel answered, oh man, can you imagine this moment? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. And he had to be like, oh! What? He's alive? My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And Daniel was, when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in God. He had trusted in God. Thing number four you're going to need for the journey of a life of courageous obedience is this. As the author, we need to remember that God has the last word. God always has the last word. He is the alpha, the first word. He is the omega, the last word. He is God. He will always have the last word. Did you catch that last last line on this? No wound was found on Daniel because he had trusted in God. Nobody thought that would be the outcome. Nobody thought, I bet he won't be injured. Nobody planned on that. Daniel was thrown into a pit of death. He should have been eaten. Logic, natural order, everything. Like nature, science, instinct says Daniel was currently being digested. That's what you would think. He was finished, but God is bigger. Daniel had not lived under the world's rules in his own life. So, he was not subject to them when he submitted his life in courageous obedience to God's plan. God subjected nature to him and the instinct of the lions, their mouths were shut by the angel and Daniel was unharmed because he trusted in God. If you're gonna go on a road to courageous obedience, you need to remember this, I need to remember this, God always has the final word. Because Daniel's courageous obedience is a foreshadowing. His life is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two people in the Old Testament not that no sin is um, re- recorded of them, Joseph and Daniel. Those are the two people in the Old Testament who no, no sin is recorded. We're not saying they're sinless. We're saying they are types of Christ. Their life is lived to point the way towards what the Messiah will look like. It's a beautiful image. And Daniel's life of courageous obedience time after time, starting with food, you know, just all the way, all the way through his life, courageous obedience, foreshadowing some beautiful Christology and theology about what Christ would go through. I want you to think with me as we turn from Daniel's courageous obedience and some of the imagery there we're going to pull back as we talk about Jesus' courageous obedience. Because this is where the Old Testament and the New Testament kind of come together in this beautiful thing of like, oh man, how wise is our God? Like how, how, how kind is he to show us such an image? Jesus in a more full way, completed the ultimate courageous obedience. Think about it with me. He was obedient to his father. I say it every time we do communion, that Jesus Christ was sent into this world and fulfilled all obedience to the divine law, and he was sent by his father. He was sent by the father, and he went. He was envied like Daniel was envied. But Jesus was envied by the chief priests 
and the Pharisees. He was envied. They hated him. They couldn't stand him. There was public outrage one day about Jesus, this man who had done so much for so many. One day, he stood next to Barabbas, a zealot, and they screamed, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. I mean, do you see the echoes to Daniel here? Do you see that Jesus is fulfilling a courageous obedience, innocent but accused? He's, he's standing there accused. It looks like a failure to the world. His messianic leadership is going to fall flat and nothing's going to come of his life. And we pick up and we look in Luke chapter 23 where we can look and see what happens. That Jesus Christ ends up on a criminal's cross, the middle cross with a criminal on his right and on his, his, right and on his left. And he's being mocked. He's being mocked. The chief priests, if you're the Messiah... The Son of God, why don't you save yourself and come down, they say. The Romans are like, yeah, king of the Jews, why don't you do this? Then they threw dice for his clothes. One criminal is like, hey, if you're the Messiah and the Son of God, why don't you save yourself and us in the process? Then one guy, the other criminal, cries out, have you no respect for God? This man has done nothing wrong. We are getting the sentence we deserve. We earned this, yet he has done nothing wrong. He turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise. The first member of the church to go to heaven, right there. A criminal on a cross, getting what he deserved and then getting grace, unmerited favor of God in the moments before he died. It's a beautiful picture, but I'll tell you, when Jesus says, truly, you'll be with me today in paradise, I think something had to contort on Caiaphas, the high priest's face, like, what, how can you say that from there? Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And he had to be like, what are you talking about? You, you lose, you're on the cross, I won. And Jesus is like, no, Satan thought he won, the priests thought they won, the Romans thought they won. They put Jesus in a tomb and they roll a big stone over the cover because that's where the dead go. But God would roll the stone away. And what looked like failure in the world's eyes was actually God having the final word over sin, over death, and over hell. I love that. I'd never seen it that way till I talked with my wife about it, and she really kind of talked with me about how this looked, the optics of it. And I remember it kind of, I think it was something God revealed to you a long time, a while ago, Erica, and you talked to me, and as we, we looked at it, I was like, man, that is really true. It looked like failure, but it wasn't. It was God prepping the last word, and the last word of creation is the same as the first, Jesus. The final word is Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So it calls us to this. Church, today I call you to it, to your courageous obedience. Not creative obedience, some way to skirt what's really called your courageous obedience. I'm calling you to it. You are called into the line of biblical heroes like Daniel, but it's not done in heroic, cape-wearing fashion. It's everyday, ordinary choices that set you apart as someone who can be defined as the king called out to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, 
whom you serve continually, has your God been able to save you? Man, if someone would say that about me when I was in trouble, can you imagine, just put your name into it. Eric, servant of the living God, has your God been able to save you, the one whom you serve continually? I wish that could be said of me. It's the compliment I strive for from God. Well done, good and faithful servant, someone who serves God faithfully. Courageous obedience is the pathway to that compliment that we strive for from God alone. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are gonna have to trust that God will have the final word when things get rough. Because remember, the things you take with you is knowing that you're gonna be envied, knowing that you're gonna be hated and conspired against, knowing it's gonna look like a failure at some point, but you must obey. You must obey. Hear it when I say this, church. You must obey, and obedience isn't passive. It's a verb. It is a lifestyle. We live obediently or we die in abject like isolation and slothfulness. Church, your obedience calls you to a life that is much more a verb. Remember the way Daniel's life was described. Daniel, servant, active verb, a servant to serve of the living God, right? whom you serve continually. Daniel was active in his service of God. He was known more for his belief in God than he was for being number three in the Babylonian and Medo-Persian empire. What will be said of you after a life of courageous obedience? Oh, go get it, church. Go get it and live that life, not fearlessly, but courageously. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you call us up and out of ourselves and into you. God, we are just not worthy of such a calling. We are not worthy of such a gift, but we receive it because you are good. And in your goodness, we can rest and trust that you have a plan for us beyond our own limited scope. Guard us, keep us, bless and protect us, we pray, as we courageously obey our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you don't like doing your devotions online, we would love to invite you to pick a hard copy of them up here. We'll be keeping the airlock doors open throughout the rest, uh, basically, from now on. Uh, so you can always come in the west doors and you can get a copy of devotions. We'll have the causeway door locked, but you can always get in anytime, day or night, to grab those devotions from there. So please make use of those and uh, pick those up if you'd like a hard copy. And remember this, church, that courageous obedience, that verb lifestyle that you are called to live, that I am called to live, it's something we do when we're in relationship with God. Daniel was in relationship with God. I invite you, get into your devotions. Pick those things up, get into the word of God, get into a prayer life so that you can know what God's calling you to. Each one of us will have a different, unique calling of courageous obedience. Step by step, we'll have to do it. And the only way to discern and really listen to it is a life of prayer, a life in the word, and a life in the community of God. So pick up those devotions and take that first step of courageous obedience and see if God does for you like he did for Daniel. And he provides miraculously more than you could ask or imagine. And he'll do it all for the glory of Jesus Christ, which will be revealed in your life through courageous obedience. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is time for the church to leave the living room. That's right, you're dismissed.